My name is Jim Vedito. Um, I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Western Carolina University and uh, executive director of Appalachian Institute for Mountain Studies and the Southern Sea Legacy. I'm in the Sea Broadcast van here in Tucson, Arizona at the International Sea Library Forum. I thought I might share a little bit about how I got into seed saving and sort of my journey with some particular seeds and just sort of um, some stories and individuals who have um, inspired me uh, along the way. So I actually got into seed saving um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Georgia. I didn't grow up with it, although my grandparents had, had been the farming generations and my, my parents had not. Um, but I, I, was, I moved out to this sort of organic farm, local CSA. This was in the mid-90s. And uh, these graduate students were growing out some seeds from the Southern Sea Legacy Project, which I coordinated when I was a grad student. Now I'm directing um, that my professors, um, Dr. Robert Rhodes and uh, Virginia Nazarea, had started at the University of Georgia. And they had worked all over the world documenting and promoting agrobiodiversity. Um, uh, Bob was senior social scientist at the International Potato Center in Lima. Um, Virginia had worked in the Philippines quite a bit with sweet potatoes and, uh, and rice. And, and they both became professors at University of Georgia. And, and Bob was actually from Oklahoma, so he grew up with sort of old time um, farmers. He grew up on a, on a dirt farm, as he would say, in, in Oklahoma. And, um, they realized that in the American South there were these old-timey farmers and gardeners. And actually, um, uh, Kent Whaley, in, uh, in, a, in a preface to this, this seeds, seed-saving book by uh, Sue Strickland that was published in the 90s, he had said that, you know, there's been a lot of genetic erosion in the, um, in the global north and in the U.S. And he said, but in particular communities um, such as the Amish or... Um, Native American communities or marginalized places like Southern Appalachia or different areas in the U.S. South tend to have pockets of, of seed savers and growers and, um, and Virginia and Bob sort of noticed that immediately and so they started this in-situ conservation program um, in order to conserve um, Southern agrobiodiversity. So I moved out onto this farm and I started growing out these seeds. I was kind of young, radical, um, wannabe farmer and, and uh, really came from an environmentalist perspective um, that I had recently acquired. I grew up in sort of a traditional, um, not super traditional, but somewhat traditional southern military family, right? And uh, so I didn't necessarily have a radical perspective growing up. Um, uh, but I recently had acquired one uh, through various uh, suspicious outlets um, and then uh, auspicious maybe. Um, and so I, w I got into, I really wanted to sort of start living more sustainably and, and taking sort of responsibility for my, more, for my actions in, in a greater way, you know, in a way that was conducive to social justice and uh, environmental conservation. And so it seemed like you know, I, I looked into different envir environmental stuff and I was involved in, in various organizations, but it eventually, it didn't take too long actually, it occurred to me that, you know, what I was, how I was getting my food was my most fundamental relationship to the environment. And so I moved out there and they were growing out some of these seeds from the Southern Sea Legacy Project. It had just started, this was in 96. 
and uh, and it just fascinated me the um, the stories, the cultural histories that went along with the seeds. Um, and I encountered this uh, gentleman, this old older Southern gentleman uh, named Jimmy Cooley. Um, at, actually, I think it was at the 1997 uh, Southern Seed Legacy Seed Swap, and uh, they had set up tables um, for, for people to have displays of, of seeds and he had kind of just laid out a blanket on the ground and um, and I was walking by, I was sort of a shy, um, shy guy and I was walking by and he had all these seeds laid out and he had this beautiful what you might call an Indian corn, looks like an ornamental corn but it's really a dent corn used for cornbread and other things and uh, he had it laid out, it, it, it had red, white, and blue sort of um, coloration in it. Um, and I, I asked him, I said, well, can I get some of those seeds? Those are very beautiful. And he said, uh, yeah, um, but if I'm going to give you the seeds, you have to sit down here and I want to tell you the story behind these seeds. And he wasn't an academic or anything, you know, he's sort of a local um, carpenter, farmer type guy. Um, um, but he, he saw the importance uh, of the seeds. and. Uh, he just told me the story. He said, "Well, I got these. Um, I got these seeds from a, a, a white farmer family um, from Heard County, Georgia, on the Georgia-Alabama line." And he said um, they had been growing it out for 150 years or so, since around the time of Indian removal um, uh, in the late 1830s. And that this family was um, close personal friends with the Muscogee Creek family who was actually being removed on the Trail of Tears to what was Indian country at that time, now present state of Oklahoma. And uh, that everyone was disturbed about the situation, but um, the, the native family um, asked that white family who, were, who they were friendly with to grow out this um, seed variety, grow out this corn variety because it belonged there. It had been there for a long time and basically it was of that place. So. They handed off the seeds, and this farmer family had kept it in their family for um, uh, a century and a half. And then they passed it on. Um, I mean, I assume they're still growing it. I never have made contact with them or followed up on that, but I got it from this man, uh, Jimmy Cooley, and uh, he passed it on to me, and I've been growing it ever since um, for about 20 years now. And I've had some interesting experiences with it. It's an interesting corn um, in that uh, it's tall. It, 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 it grows 14 to 16 foot tall. It's a true dent corn. Um, it is, uh, we, we like to uh, grind it up in my family for cornbread um, around Thanksgiving or something like that. And it has this red, white, and blue flecked um, cornbread. And uh, I like to say that it's, it's patriotic corn, but in the, in the original American sense, not, not in a sort of overlay of um, American imperialism uh, that, that's been here the last 500 years. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful corn and in some years, it, so it produces two ears of corn and in some years, I don't know why, not every year, and I have grown it in different places as I've moved around a little bit and in different soil types, but sometimes it'll produce off the main ear of corn, it'll produce um, like these miniature corns like you see in like a, a, a Chinese food, at least here in America, you know, in Chinese restaurants. And it also, uh, there's a fibrous area at the base of the corn that is sugary sweet. Um, it, it is really sweet. And also the stalk of the corn is almost like sugar cane in that it's sweet as well. Um, but not every year. It's just, 
it's almost this magical shape-shifting corn. Um, and I, I assume maybe that has something to do with genetic variation or, or different environmental conditions in different growing years. But I've had different experiences with this corn. Um, but it's a really, to me, you know, it's now I've, I've been interacting with it for 20 years and I feel like I have a, something of a s sacred relationship with it and uh, my son loves it and um, it's just, uh, so to me, I, I just, I get warm just thinking about it. Um, I've also, so now I've, I've went on and I, I actually, um, once I graduated from undergraduate, I just headed for the hills, actually. I just headed up in the western North Carolina mountains. I apprenticed with this herbalist and ran an heirloom garden at an off-grid permaculture site worked for a year. Worked on another farm for a year. Then I ran a garden program at uh, the Arthur Morgan School in Silo, North Carolina. Sort of a Quaker-inspired alternative, but not as in bad kid, but, you know, alternative to, to mainstream culture. Um, sort of folk type outdoor experiential learning school and I, I ran a garden program there and I grew out about a hundred 125 varieties a year with the kids and I you know it would the uh, heirloom seeds are great teaching tools you know um, that you can learn agronomy obviously biology botany um, agroecology but also history cultural anthropology I mean we would tell that story of the of the red, white, and blue corn, and then we would have, um, you know, we would have maybe some some cow peas or something like that, or some okra, and I'd ask them where those seeds came from, you know, and nobody knew, and I'd say, well, they originally came from Africa, you know, and a lot of, sometimes even slaves would hide them, you know, in their hair or their belongings, and this is common, right? I mean, that's like people's bank account when people go from uh, are forcibly removed or or just move voluntarily they they take seed agricultural people make sure they take seeds it, because that's really um, their way of survival but so you can teach very interesting um, cultural history place space history um, um, sort of seed resistances uh, uh, if you will I think that red white and blue corn embodies a sort of resistance right or a, a resistance to forgetting uh, and although the people were being physically removed, they wanted to leave something behind of, of their culture and agriculture. Um, so it's a sad story, but also there's some beauty in it, um, just, just in terms of um, how, how people care about seeds and place. Um, and so now I did, I did my dissertation. I did a, uh, a comparison between um, Western North Carolina and the Arkansas Ozarks. And was and was have been able to show um, through actually working with Gary Nabhan and and others through this um, Renewing America's Food Tradition Alliance um, that Central and Southern Appalachia we've got more than twice as many uh, heirloom food crops um, um, than any other uh, food shed that we know of in the U.S., Canada, and Northern Mexico. Um, we've been able to identify over 2,000 distinct varieties at this point, about a thousand apples about 400 beans and then a variety of different things but I come across a lot of um, a lot of interesting characters um, a lot of um, interesting seeds uh, there's one uh, there's one actual crop that I love to grow it's actually a, it's called a candy roaster squash and uh, Fedco Seeds some years ago called it the best baking squash in the world and I, I would like to second that um, um, it, it's delicious um, but it's actually a Cherokee 
um, squash. Um, but it's a, it's a Cherokee squash that has diffused into um, greater Appalachia. And uh, folks use it um, just for, for a baking squash or cooking squash. They make candy roaster butter out of it, um, all these different things. But um, I, um, I, I gathered this variety from this individual, um, uh, just a character named uh, Ernie Bradford in Yancey County, um, uh, Bald Mountain, North Carolina. And he had the seed of what he called a rough, a rough bark candy roaster. And it had, um, and, and he differentiated it. There's, we now, we know that there's over 45 different candy roaster types in Western North Carolina, this one varietal, right? And they're very diverse, they originate with the Cherokee. Um, and so he differentiated it from slick roasters. And the rough bark candy roasters have this, on the skin, it's, it's harder and it's, it's, it's sort of rippled and it has a sort of more gnarly look to it, but, um, and it's harder than the slick roasters, but it keeps better. Um, one year I grew one that was about 70 pounds. It was about half, I'm six foot five, is about halfway up to my, it was up to my waist basically. And uh, I found that the, uh, at least this variety, this, the, and this is what they told me, that, that, uh, um, that the uh, rough bark candy roasters um, which we later made a little folk band out of. We called them the Rough Bark Candy Roasters, a little departmental band at Georgia. But um, uh, they, A, they keep better. They keep longer because they've got sort of that thicker, rougher skin, as he called it. Um, but they are also sweeter and they taste better. Um, so that is a, uh, a really unique variety. Um, I will say that, um, so apples and beans are very um, important to Appalachian culture, and beans in particular. Um, so I've been told by certain individuals who grew up on farms that they always had a pot of beans on the wood stove or the gas stove or whatever it was, and they didn't always have meat for protein or whatever, but they would grow, work out in the fields, and then come back in. And actually, so I've documented about 500 or so bean varieties, and I know there's more out there, but um, the, the Appalachian naming practices and the culinary practices um, uh, associated with beans are really interesting because um, they have all these descriptors that they'll add on to the bean name that actually correlate um, to morphological characteristics in the plants. So, if, and the seeds, actually. So you can, you can okay, so you start out with a cornfield bean, which is a, a bean that grows out in the corn. Or actually, uh, I mean, I, this, I don't know if this has been scientifically proven, but observations of myself and other agroecologists are that they're pretty well adapted to sort of shady conditions in cornfields. And so um, let's say it's a cornfield bean, um, but it's, uh, the seed is, is, is uh, speckled and streaked. So you can have a speckled streaked cornfield bean. Let's say that um, it is, it's not only a cornfield bean, but it's a greasy bean. And so a greasy bean is a bean that doesn't have the little filament hairs that are normally on a bean pod. And for whatever reason, whatever biological reason, it makes it look like it has a greasy sheen on it. So they call them greasy beans, which my colleague and friend Bill Best says that's the Cadillac of Appalachian pole beans, um, or Appalachian beans. And let's say inside that pod, that, that, that seed pod doesn't have um, 
doesn't have uh, the, the sort of plant fiber that grows inside the pod that separates the, the different beans from each other. So if, if you do have those separate compartments, as it were, and that's all, I don't have the biological terminology for it, but compartments in there, right, you'll get a per, almost a perfectly oval bean. But some beans don't have those compartments in that, that, uh, that area inside the seed that separates it off, so they, so they bunch up and they square off at the ends, and so they call those cut short beans. So now you've got a, 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 a streaked, um, uh, what was streaked modeled, uh, cut short, greasy cornfield bean, and so on and so forth. And, and, and there's, there's even pretty interesting, well, there's one that's kind of a, a joke amongst um, people in Southern Appalachia. Um, uh, one characteristic is a lazy wife bean. And so it sounds like a sexist, uh, term. It's actually morphological and relates to sort of um, uh, uh, traditional practices that um, uh, most beans, they grow up the vine and they put off a bean, they're alternate. They put off one bean on this side, one bean on this side. But these lazy white beans put them off in whole bunches of beans. So you'll have four or five beans. And Appalachian women used to put them out in the kitchen garden um, uh, right near the house or even right next to the, the window of the cabin, right? And so they'll be cooking and it'll be growing up a trellis or something outside and they can just reach out there and grab you a bunch of beans right there. And so they call it, kind of jokingly, you know, a lazy wife bean. So you could have a, a uh, mostly lazy wife beans aren't cornfield beans, but just for the sake of argument, you can have a streak spotted um, uh, mottled, uh, uh, greasy cut short lazy wife cornfield bean and so on and so forth. So there's these local naming practices and a bunch bean they call bush beans bunch beans. Um, and, and, and there's such a great variety of beans and, and are these uh, Appalachian people are really, not obviously not everyone, but, but people who grew up sort of in this bean culture um, have a lot of, of, of really local knowledge and, and and there, there are just all sorts of, of bean varieties. And this greasy bean, actually, so <laughs> I, uh, in my work, I try to convince sometimes like or sustainable farmers to grow out heirloom varieties or whatever and try to promote, promote those. And it doesn't usually happen just because they order from Johnny's seed catalog or this seed catalog or something. They may use some heirlooms, you know, but they're usually brandy wine, tomatoes or something like this. Um, and, but the beans, right, they'll grow like a, like a, um, what's that one, uh, I don't even know, a blue lake, right, that's a, sort of a popular bush bean or royal purple pot or something like that, right, and they'll grow them, and, and, and like most people in health food stores or whatever, just want a, a green bean that has no strings in it, it's sort of tender, and it doesn't have much of a bean in it, it's slender. Um, I've interviewed Appalachian people who absolutely are disgusted by the idea of that, right? And so they'll never go to like, it, it's sort of a cultural thing, right? If they'll never go buy beans from some organic farmer, you know, who's growing these blue lakes or something like that. But if you just got a guy with a truck on the side of the road with a bunch of greasy beans, that'll sell out like in an hour, you know? The, the local people all know what that is. and I, you know, from my experience and, and my research, I think it is because, and, and my, my, my gastronomic preferences as well, um, that they actually grow those greasy beans and they grow them until the, the seeds are really big in the pod. 
and and they're also string beans. So what they do is they grow them and 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 you you harvest them. And it used to be women, and it used to be a really social activity, right? And so you would snap those beans and string them, and you would put them in a pot, and you would add some fat back, which is a fatty part of a of a hog, and put it in there and cover it just over the top of, of, of where the beans fill up the pot and cook it down. And once you've done that for three or four hours, you just have this amazing tasting dish. It's very simple, um, but, but cooking it in that way brings out tastes and flavors that you can't get in this sort of French cut whatever bean that you know um, you would get at a fancy restaurant or something like that. And I think it's practical too because if you let that bean mature in there you're gonna have more protein. And so those folks were living off the land, they were wanting a consistent source of protein, you know, whereas, you know, I'm sure bean pot I haven't done like the nutritional analysis on it or anything, but I you know, I'm sure bean fresh green bean pods are good for you, but it's not gonna give you that sort of hardiness the a good pot of down-home cooked greasy beans are. So um, there's particular food ways there. There's particular naming patterns. Um, it's, it's, it's a land. I mean, so Southern Appalachia is the, the world's center for salamander diversity. It's the second most diverse temperate forest type in the world. It's a center for mushroom diversity in the U.S. Um, it, uh, it, it's not known, uh, generally it's known for culture, but maybe not cultural diversity, but there is a lot more cultural diversity pe than people understand there, um, um, particularly with African American traditions, Cherokee traditions, um, and uh, the banjo, for instance, is an African gourd instrument that came over and was adapted into old-timey and bluegrass music, which of course comes originally from the British Isles, and there's this, this sort of very interesting cultural, com I'm a cultural anthropologist, so I, I find a lot of interest in sort of tracing those threads of, of culture, but so now we've got the agrobiodiversity there, and it's a mountainous area, right, and, uh, and it's super ecologically diverse, and areas of ecological diversity, mountainous areas correlate to high areas of agricultural biodiversity across the world, really, and, and linguistic diversity as well. And so um, it's just a really, and it's a beautiful place. And, um, but a lot of these gardeners, average age that I have interviewed, 70 years old. Um, low income, um, usually what you would, they often would self-identify as being an old timer, you know, sort of Southern Baptist, out in overalls, growing out these things. Um, but they have an incredibly sophisticated knowledge about local agricultural ways. and. Uh, uh, so some of my work is I've got this um, Appalachian Institute for Mountain Studies. I've got an heirloom orchard with a hundred apple varieties. Um, I've got um, I've got a collection of almost 2,000 seeds that I grow out. Um, we're in a transition phase right now. I just actually moved back into the region, but um, it's uh, my idea, and and actually my 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 uh, colleague Brian Campbell. Is now at Berry College, um, has done a lot of this in the Ozarks as well. Uh, that there are subpopulations um, in, in both Ozarks, but I'll talk about Southern Appalachia right now. In that, so you've got the old time, you've got native people, right? You've got the Eastern Cherokee and you've got traditional Appalachian mountaineers, um, most of, a lot of whom have some Cherokee heritage as well. Um, and then uh, you have 
you have these folks uh, back to the landers, right, who came in in the 60s and 70s and sort of spurned the bioregionalism and permaculture and morphed into eco-villages in the 90s, so the sort of alternative crowd. Um, you've also got environmental researchers like myself and others, and, and uh, particularly with the old-timers and the, and the permaculture folks, I think those are subpopulations in um, the area that I work that have very detailed local environmental knowledge, but they're different. No they're different knowledge sets, and there's some overlap, but there's um, there's also some uniqueness to each. And I think um, I, I so I hang out a lot with old timers, and I hang out with the permaculture folks too. And sort of my idea of of my work and 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 the center that that I'm running is to and through seed swaps and through foodways and this sort of stuff is to try to get this sort of mixture of, of, of these people with who normally might not cross paths but maybe um, to create this sort of cultural creative space you know where 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 the people where where those types of people with diverse environmental knowledges can kind of I don't know, just get together, eat some barbecue, swap some seeds, and maybe maybe even create a sustainable future. 